Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, if I've not had a chance to meet you, my name is Aaron, uh, teaching pastor for Riverwood. And as Jake just said, we are uh, concluding our short little uh, sermon series, Being a Penny Christian. And we'll redefine a penny Christian here in just uh, a moment. Well, I suspect some of you here today have heard of the theologian Jonathan Edwards, right? He lived back in the 1700s, uh, very influential uh, individual. And if you haven't heard of him, don't, don't worry about it. I want to know, have you heard of John Edwards, the modern day chef? I hadn't until this week. Uh, he was trained as a chef, and then he served, he, he's uh, British, he served in the UK in the Army Catering Corps for 25 years. Didn't even know they had a branch for catering, uh, but they do. Well, then he retired uh, from the military, and he went back to school and got his PhD in food service. Uh, That ended up eventually landing him an appointment here in the United States. The uh, title is way too long. We don't have time for me to say it all. Uh, But he was here for quite a while. But before he came to the United States, he served at a uh, college, Bournemouth University in the UK. While there, he conducted an experiment. He wanted to know, is the food that he creates affected by the environment in which it is eaten. The, 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 could you take the same dish and is it going to taste the same no matter where you eat it or is your perception going to change based on where you're at? So he made a dish, chicken a la king. I mean, doesn't that look absolutely amazing? Also, I haven't had breakfast, so I'm hungry. So, I mean, like that just looks amazing. This was his dish and he made this dish and he served it I think this was back in 2002, so, so uh, 20-some years ago. He serves this dish in five-star restaurants, three-star restaurants, a nursing home, a boarding school, and then they got results back. What was people's impression of the exact same dish? Well, in the five-star restaurants where the ambiance is amazing, you pay uber amounts of money for, you know, a plate, uh, you know, like great reputation, the feedback was overwhelmingly positive, saying how tasty it was, moist, uh, it, like filling. People just loved it and wanted more. But they served the exact same dish in like a nursing home and a boarding school where the reputation isn't quite as good for the food. And the responses said it was dry, it was tasteless. Even one comment said it was disgusting. That is the power of assumption. When you walk into a five-star restaurant, you just assume the food is going to be amazing. And it matches with your assumption. But when you walk into a boarding school where, oh man, the food here just stinks all the time. Even though you're served a five-star meal, you just assume that's not very good because of the environment. You and I run on assumption all the time because assumptions are powerful. Assumptions are a little bit like drugs. They are powerful, they are potent, and they can be used for good, but also for ill. We've all run on assumption. You see someone, the way they're dressed, and you just assume certain things about them. Uh, For instance, if you see a, a lanky guy, in a a white tank top, tattoos up on his arms, bandana on his head, you might begin to assume he's probably a gang member. Or or maybe he's he's like a drug dealer. Oh, he's probably like unemployed. 
Or he's probably like really mean to his girlfriend, probably not faithful. And you might end up being totally wrong. The dude might actually be a very faithful husband, a very caring father. He might have a job where he is one of the most reliable, hardest workers they have. We've all made the mistake. Last week, I shared the story of how I transferred to John Brown University where I met Leanne. Well, on the same day that I met Leanne, I met Pat. Pat was a guy on my floor. And when I met Pat, he just kind of had this little kind of goofy grin. And he, he always kind of cocked his head at you. And I just made this assumption, Pat's probably not the brightest guy on campus. But I transferred to a Christian college, so, you know, I got to be nice to him. So we'll just treat this kind of guy, you know, with, with some respect, but, you know, just kind of understanding who he is. I was so wrong. Pat was an engineering major. Not only did he have a job secured before he graduated, he went on to own the engineering company that he worked for. Pat was no slouch. And the reason Pat always cocked his head when he looked at you is because he was deaf in one ear, born that way. So he wanted his good ear to hear what you were saying so he could stay connected. I wish the world had a million Pat Sullivans. This dude was amazing. He was awesome. Became one of my best friends in college. And it was in our wedding. And how wrong I was in my assumptions about him. And yet, even though we've all had our Pat mistake, we continue to run on assumption. We make assumptions about politicians, about the new kid at school, uh, about the neighbor, celebrities, even our closest friends and family, we still make assumptions about what they want and what they're thinking and how they're feeling. Even though we've been bitten so badly by our assumptions. Now, as I said, sometimes assumptions can be helpful. Right? For instance, if you learn how to read certain social cues, it might protect you from some mistakes. Like if you see a guy in a Minnesota Vikings jersey, you're probably safe to assume he's not an Aaron Rodgers fan. If you don't get that reference, it's Okay. But, but sometimes you're saved, but sometimes we're in horribly wrong. And our assumptions actually work against us. Such as when I was a teen. I grew up in a small town. And I just assumed that everyone knew I was a Christian. I think most everyone knew I went to church. I didn't cuss. I didn't drink. And I didn't date girls who did. And that last one was easy because no girl wanted to date me. But I just assumed that because then they knew that I was a Christian, that they would want to become a Christian, that they could see it in my life. I used to love the St. Francis of Assisi quote. Preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. And then I discovered that St. Francis of Assisi never said that. We have no record of him saying it. And then I also learned that it's biblically wrong. See, two weeks ago, we talked about the importance as a penny Christian, one sent to live like Jesus lived and love like Jesus loved. If you are a Jesus follower, you are to be sent to do these things. And one of the things we saw was that you need to give your time. Then last week, we saw that if you're going to be a penny Christian, you also need to give your heart, your presence, jump in there, just be with people before people. But as good and beautiful and necessary as those things are, if you are truly giving your time, truly giving of your heart, there will come a moment where you will need to give words. You cannot just assume that people are going to just kind of pick it up 
All your time and heart will do is create curiosity and they will begin to want to know more. And that's where you're going to have to use words. To see it for yourself, I invite you to open up your Bible to Ephesians chapter 6. So if you brought a Bible today, open it up to Ephesians 6. If you're a first-time guest with us, uh, if you have a Bible on your phone, totally feel free to pull that out. We are uh, totally fine with uh, digital Bibles. But I would encourage you, if you don't have a paper Bible, to get that as well. Because the thing is, with your, with your uh, uh, digital phone, you use that for all sorts of things. Now, I think having a digital Bible is better than no Bible. But if, if at all possible, get yourself a paper Bible because the only thing you do with it is read it and, and learn it and absorb it. And so, so uh, get yourself a paper Bible. If you don't own one, stop by our resource table, take one of the, of the paper Bibles that's there and make that your uh, everyday Bible. So uh, before we jump into Ephesians chapter six, uh, let's pray together and then I'll explain a little bit of what we're gonna read. Well, Heavenly Father, uh, today as we come to the scriptures and we conclude this little series, uh, I pray that ultimately it'd be you encouraging us Lord, some of us here, we need the encouragement to give our words. Some of us, we need to be challenged. Uh, some of us, uh, we might need even to be convicted. Um, Lord, I, I spent way too long being afraid uh, to, to say anything because I wanted people to like me. And yet, Lord, you love me and that's more than enough. And so, Lord, just as I now speak these words to my church family, encouraging them to live like Jesus lived and love like Jesus loved, and that means communicating your love for the world. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to, to take up the challenge, to be bold, and allow you to speak through us, knowing that it might just change the eternity of someone else. And so, Lord, I pray that you would ultimately guide my words, that this would be what you have for us today. And I ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, the book of Ephesians was written by uh, the Apostle Paul. Uh, Paul, in uh, his missionary journeys, ended up uh, in Ephesus, and, and as he shared the gospel about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, he ended up seeing some people put their faith in Jesus. And so this church starts. And it, when he was in Ephesus, he ended up living there longer than any other place. Ephesus ended up being a very key, critical city. So eventually, though, he realized he needed to continue on with what God called him to, and so he left Timothy uh, in charge. Well, then a few years later, a, a report had come to him. Now, this happened often where he'd get news of these churches that he'd planted. And, and oftentimes, he'd hear some of the issues, the problems that were going on. But not with the Ephesians. This is one of the few letters that we have from Paul where he's not having to address all these problems and issues that they're facing. It, it, it's almost like he's writing the letter to celebrate. Like, man, you guys are still following Jesus. I'm so encouraged. But yet, he also is writing it to say, but hey, don't forget what I taught you. Keep following Jesus. And so as you read this letter that's just six chapters long, the first half, the first three chapters are, are all about the, 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 the theological significance of the gospel. But then in chapter four, he makes a shift from the theological implications of the gospel to the practical implications of the gospel. Like this is how you should therefore live. This is how you should therefore think. This is how you should speak. And as he comes towards the end of his letter, in a typical first century fashion, he ends his letter with greetings. Right before he gives those greetings, he says this. Ephesians 6, start with me at verse 18. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Oh, and also for me. That words may be given to me in opening my mouth 
boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This, uh, these three verses come right out of a very famous section of scripture that just usually is called the armor of God. Kids, any of you heard of the armor of God? Okay, I see several hands going up. If you were part of the Riverwood family three years ago, if you remember, there was a time where our, our government wouldn't let us meet as a church. And so every Friday night, Jake, Bridget, and I would, would arrive at our previous location, Drosty Hall. Randy would come to help run some sound. Caden would come and shoot the video. And we would record our service. And Caden would edit it all day Saturday, upload it to YouTube, and then we'd all join in together on Sunday mornings at 9.30 and watch it together. Well, I remember one of those weeks, Bridget brought a full suit of armor. Well, as full of a, a suit of armor as she could. And she's like wearing it and everything. It was absolutely awesome. It was so cool. Paul is giving this illustration of like this Roman soldier's armor because he saw a spiritual equivalent that, that God has given you. If you are a follower of Jesus, he's given you this invisible spiritual armor to wear, to protect you and to help you in the spiritual battle. Well, one of the weapons that God has given you as a follower of Jesus is prayer. That is why flowing right out of this conversation about this spiritual armor, he's like, pray. And kids, when does he say to, when to pray? He said, at all times. So kids, something great happens? Pray. Thank God. Something really bad's happening? Pray. Ask God to help. You hear about something going on with someone else? Pray. Ask God to help them. Just at any time, begin to just pray. Talk to God. Pray at all times in the spirit. But what I want you to notice is that he encourages them to pray at all times for all things. But he specifically says, pray for your fellow Jesus followers. Pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Pray for others who believe like you. But then he says, and pray also for me. Now I want you to notice, how does Paul describe himself? It's down there in verse 20. He says, I am an ambassador. Now kids, an ambassador is someone who represents a government to another government. So the United States, if we want to have a, you know, a relationship with another nation, uh, you know, Mexico, we have an ambassador from the United States who then lives in Mexico to represent the interests of the United States to the, the Mexican government. Well, that's interesting. Paul describes himself as an ambassador. Kids, you might be thinking, well, wait, I thought Paul was a, a pastor or maybe a missionary, church planner. Ambassador though? Well, he was all those other things. But yes, he was an ambassador. But wasn't like an ambassador for Israel to Rome. It wasn't an ambassador of goodwill. No, he's an ambassador for the gospel, as he says in verse 19. But then I want you to notice, he tacks on a little phrase there by ambassador. He's an ambassador for the gospel, but he's in chains. That's his like fancy poetical way of saying, yeah, I'm in prison. When Paul is writing this letter to the church in Ephesus, he is under house arrest in Rome. Uh, we'll, we'll see this uh, uh, later. I, I think we get to it uh, next year. But eventually we're going to see the apostle Paul when we get back to the book of Acts. We're going to see a moment where he ends up getting arrested because of his faith in Jesus. 
that they put him on trial. They try to, you know, get him convicted and get him thrown in prison and get him canceled. And because he's a Roman citizen, he appeals to the Caesar. As a Roman citizen, he could do that. So he appealed to the Caesar. So they've shipped him off to Rome and he's sitting in, in prison, basically, awaiting trial. And it's going to take years before it happens. So as he's just sitting there under house arrest, this guard is making sure he doesn't take off. He can entertain visitors, but he has all sorts of time to write. And that is why we have so many letters from Paul. Now, when Paul is writing this letter, he's saying, I'm in chains for this. He says in another letter, this is in uh, Philippians chapter 1. And you don't have to turn there. We'll be back in Ephesians in just a moment. But in Philippians 1 verse 13, Paul says, It has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So Paul says, yeah, they all know why I'm here. And so if anyone could just make an assumption that they know what he's all about, it's Paul. And yet that assumption isn't enough for him. Because he specifically said, and pray also for me that words may be given to me. Paul knew it wasn't enough for him to just give his time. And he's giving a lot of time. He's in prison. He also knew it wasn't enough to just give his heart. I mean, this dude has given his life for the sake of the gospel. Everyone knows why he's in prison. He still says, but pray also that words may be given to me. Now, now, I don't know about you, but I'm pretty impressed by Paul. God used him to write two-thirds of the New Testament. If anyone was good with words, it's Paul. And yet he still says, pray that words may be given to me. And so if he needs prayer for words, you and I need prayer for words. But this also shows me the incredible like, importance of words. That we cannot go like teenage Aaron and just assume that the way I live and go about my life is enough to be a penny Christian. If we're truly going to be one sent to live like Jesus lived and love like Jesus loved, it's going to bring a moment where we're going to have to use words. However, there are some cautions in the scriptures about our words. Jesus, when he is having a conversation with uh, some of the Pharisees, he uh, says to them this. This is from Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 34. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. In other words, your words are incredibly important, but they have to be in sync with the life you live. There are many pastors who are no longer at certain churches or even no longer in ministry who stood on a stage similar to me preaching good words, but behind the scenes, they were not saying good words. They were tearing people down. They were telling crude jokes. They were trying to present one thing here, but because they were not allowing themselves to give out of the good treasure they have, it eventually caught up to them. God wants you living in complete sync 
That is why you have to go back to last week. In order to give your heart, you've got to continue to sow to the Spirit. If you were with us, we were in Galatians 6. And we saw that you reap what you sow. So sow to the Spirit. Pour yourself into Christ. Because the more you're in Christ, the greater treasure you have. And the more you then have to draw upon and say the right words. Now this does not mean you're not going to mess it up. Yeah, you'll have a moment where you're hangry. You're going to be a little frustrated. You're not going to have gotten enough sleep. And you're going to end up saying something that you regret. All of us do it. The question is though, if you are living a Christ-centered life, when you have that moment you mess up and you go to the person to make amends, they'll believe you. They'll forgive you because they've seen the kind of life you've been living. But if you live consistently for self, making it all about you, you say that harsh moment, even if you try to make amends, they're not going to believe you. Because they've been seeing and sensing the kind of treasure that you've been storing up. And when you make it all about yourself, they don't sense that you're for them. But the more you seek after Christ, the more you have to draw upon. And so you can say those good words of, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? And they will believe it. And when you continually seek after Christ, allowing him to minister and work in you and do something deep in you, you're going to have less dumb moments. You'll just have far less moments where you say something dumb and you'll not be putting your foot in your mouth nearly as often. And so your words are incredibly important. It's necessary to be a penny Christian to share them, but those words must sync up with your life. All right, now, the last, three, last two weeks, uh, we have uh, concluded with three tips. So I'm going to do the same today. We're going to give you three tips in how to give your words. The first tip comes from Ephesians 6. The first tip is to pray. And there are three things that I actually think we need to pray for. The first one we, is when we hear Paul say in verse 19, to pray also for me that words may be given to me. So as I said, if, if Paul could ask for prayer for words, then I think you and I should ask God to give us the words. Uh, if you're uh, getting our weekly uh, email on Thursdays and the news and notes, and you actually open them up and read them, uh, uh, 10 days ago, we, we uh, looked at this idea of facing your fear when it comes to using your words. Like, oftentimes when people ask you spiritual questions, you're, you might get a little nervous. And, and that's okay. But oftentimes those nerves come because y- you feel like, oh man, I'm going to mess this up. Or I, I don't know what to say. Or, well, I'm going to say something, but it's going to be all wrong. Or they're not going to hear what I mean. And I'm just going to screw the whole thing up, so I may as well just stay quiet. Uh, no. Let me, let me take a little pressure off of you. Uh, in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus was sending out his uh, d- 12 disciples. And he's saying, hey, as you go around to these towns, you're going to tell them about God's love. But some of them aren't going to like what they're hearing from you. And so they're going to kind of drag you before courts. You're going to be drugged before kings, before governors. And, and they're going to question you. And he said this to them. This is uh, Matthew 10, starting verse 19. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Well, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead and was working in those 12 disciples is the same spirit that you have. 
If you are a follower of Jesus, the moment you put your faith in Christ, God's Holy Spirit came to live within you. And he is able to give you the words you need. And so in that moment, someone asks you a question and you get a little nervous, simply pray. God, would you give me the words to say? Just trust him and he can work through you. But also because we so often find ourselves faced with fear, the second thing we need to do is to pray for boldness. Uh, Paul, whenever I read his letters, the dude just seemed really, really bold. He just seemed to not be afraid to say what needed to be said. And yet I want you to notice, twice in these three verses, he asks for prayer for boldness. First, he says it there in verse 19, pray also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. And then he says, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So twice he says, hey, pray that I do this. Pray that I would have confidence. And, and so if you find yourself a little nervous at this idea of, of answering someone's spiritual question, it, you're, you're right there with Paul. And so not only say, God, would you give me the, the right words? But would you also give me the boldness, the confidence to say it? it? It's so hard in our day and age because anymore, so often this boldness, this idea, it seems like screaming. I just want you to know, boldness does not mean standing on the street screaming that everyone's going to hell. Boldness is simply just speaking up. Speak it with love. Speak it with grace. But share it. Speak these words and have confidence that God can use them. Because again, someone putting their faith in Jesus is not going to come because you said everything just right. It will come because God opens our heart and minds there's a story back in Genesis where uh, God speaks through a donkey. And uh, a pastor uses uh, that as an uh, illustration for a podcast. He called his podcast The Preaching Donkey. And his tagline was, if God can speak through a donkey, he can speak through you. So if God can speak through a donkey, he can speak through you. So you can do this. Have some confidence. Trust God. Now, this doesn't mean you can't go and prepare, study, read. But ultimately... Just trust God because God loves that person way more than you ever could. And so he will want to use you. So rely on the Holy Spirit. Pray that he'd give you the words, but pray that he'd help you get, speak them with some confidence. Now, even if you pray that God give you the words, you pray for some boldness. If you don't have a chance to share it, you've accomplished nothing. So I think the third thing you should pray for is opportunity. Just pray that God would give you an opportunity to give words. Obviously, this can apply to the, the last two weeks. Pray that God give you an opportunity to give your time, that you have an opportunity to give your heart, but also pray that he would give you an opportunity to use words. Um, <laughs> 20 years ago, there, uh, on, on, the Navigators were very, very active on the campus of UNI. I, I think they are still there. Well, I uh, talking to one of the staff there, he, he ended up sharing a story of one of the guys in their ministry. Uh, he was, I think, a sophomore. Um, I forget if he'd come to Christ his freshman year or maybe in high school, but he, he seemed new in his faith and it was exciting to him and he, he wanted to end up sharing the, his faith with others. But he was an extreme introvert. Like the dude was scared to even just talk about himself, let alone his faith in Jesus. And so one day he was meeting one-on-one -on -one with the, the staff member who's telling me the story. And, and the guy confessed, he goes, I, I'm a chicken. Like, I, I, I'm a chicken. He says, but I just admitted, I'm a chicken evangelist. I just pray that God would give me an opportunity. 
And when he brings me the opportunity, I pray that he would make me bold and that in my boldness, I would share the words. And so this incredibly shy, introverted dude saw three of his friends put their faith in Jesus in one semester. Simply because he was willing to say, God, would you give me the opportunity to share about my faith in Jesus? So if this chicken evangelist could do it, you can do it. So pray. That's my first tip. My second tip is ask questions. Too often when it comes to this concept of evangelism, we're so worried about what we're going to say. But I think sometimes we should focus more on what we need to learn. Because you see, there's a story in this other person. And so learn this story. Listen to them. Learn all you can about them. Ask them questions. So kids, if you have a friend come to you and say, hey, what do you believe about this? Rather than say, well, my parents say this, or my church believes that, or I think the Bible says it. Start with, hey, that's a great question. Why do you ask? Start asking, what's going on in your life? What's happening? Tell me about your spiritual background. What, what do you currently believe? Because sometimes by asking these questions, a couple of things are accomplished. First, it's going to make you a little wiser in what words you do share. That way you don't just launch into some sort of canned speech that's empty of meaning and, and love. You're going to tailor it because you're, you'll have a greater sense of who they are and what God is doing in their life. But also, asking questions in a genuine sense shows that you actually care about them. Now, about a month ago, I was in conversation with someone, and uh, he asked a lot of questions. But when he asked his question, it was obvious he already knew the answer. Right? So he would ask the question, and then delighted that you didn't know it. And so he got to answer it. So he felt great. He was really smart in that conversation, and I was really dumb. Don't ask questions like that. Ask questions that truly care about them. Get to know them. Because as the, the little cliche goes, people won't care how much you know until they know how much you care. So ask questions to get to know them. But then my third tip is probably the most important tip. As much as possible in these spiritual conversations, keep the focus on Jesus. I don't know if you guys have noticed, but we live in a very divided age. People are arguing about all sorts of issues. And so it's very easy in these sort of conversations to end up on someone's pet topic. I am not saying that that topic is not important. But there's something more important. Jesus. So if you consider yourself more on like the conservative side of things, theologically or politically, your goal in these spiritual conversations is not to convince them in seven-day creation. Your goal is not to convince them that marriage is between one man and one woman. Because even if somehow you convince them of that, but they have not put their faith in Jesus, nothing of eternal value has changed. Likewise, if you're more on the side progressively, your goal is not to convince them of the evils of systemic racism. Your goal is not to get them to convert from the Republican Party to the Democratic Party. Your goal is to help them realize the love of God is shown through Jesus on the cross and the empty tomb. That is why John, the Apostle John, as he's concluding the third chapter of his gospel, says this. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. So your goal is not to get them to believe exactly as you do on your pet topic. 
The starting point needs to be Jesus. Now, if they have put their faith in Christ, now you can begin to talk about, okay, so therefore, here's what the gospel says about this topic. But if they're not a follower of Jesus yet, if you get caught up on that, they may never get to put their faith in Christ. So as much as possible, it's hard, but try to keep the focus on Jesus because that's where we see the love of God so vividly displayed and that is what they need. So it just seems appropriate as we conclude the sermon as well as this series that we do just that, that we put the focus on Jesus. And so as we get ready to go into our time of communion, I'm gonna invite Ed, one of our elders, to come and set that up. Here every week at Riverwood, this family uh, takes communion together. And if um, you've never taken communion before or you've never thought on the idea, um, if you are a guest here today or even if you are a Riverwood family member, um, you're at enmity with someone else or, or something is resting on your heart, um, we respectfully ask that you do not take communion today. Do not eat and drink uh, condemnation on yourself, as, as Scripture says. Uh, but if you are going to approach boldly, the Lord's table today, and to take communion with the rest of this family. We ask that you contemplate um, the depth of what it means to partake in a ceremony that witnesses the only true sacrifice that's ever been, been given, ever been done. That's the broken body and poured out blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he asked us, he asked his followers to come together as often as they are together, to do this in remembrance of him, to hold up that bread and to see his broken body done for them, beaten and ruined for them, for us, for you, and his blood poured out in the covenant and promises of what's to come and what he promises you in eternal life. He did those things for you. Contemplate them, please. And as you approach, boldly remember them. As it's played behind me, as Jake goes on and Michelle plays, stand, come together with the rest of your family, partake in this ceremony. Please do this now in remembrance of him. Thank you. <laughs> 